Hi, I'm Stuart Brand from Long Now. How many generations are there in the Long Now? So we say the next 10,000 years, last 10,000 years. The next 10,000 years, we don't know how generations are going to be counted, but the last 10,000 years, the anthropological standard is every 25 years there's a new generation. So that's 400 generations going back. Imagine an organization that could have representatives from all 400. Uh, it would be pretty adroit at managing in the long now. A lot of organizations here in San Francisco uh, have basically one generation. <laughs> and most generations might get to two, and almost none get to three. But how about, what are the advantages of getting to three? Someone who's experienced that, thought about it, written about it, and now teaching about it, uh, is the master of hospitality, and now the master of intergenerationality, Chip Conley. I'm Stuart Brand, the curator of this series of talks from the Long Now Foundation in San Francisco. The Long Now Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to fostering long-term thinking and responsibility. It is entirely supported by donors and members like you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to these ideas. And if you haven't already, please consider becoming a member to help inspire long-term thinking for generations to come. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that is working to build the economic infrastructure of the Internet. They help people start Internet businesses and accept online payment from customers all over the world. Thank you, Stuart. It is such an honor to be here tonight. Um, thank you. Yes. So my talk today uh, is the first time I'm giving this talk. So I, uh, yeah, you're, you're not getting old Ted stuff. You're getting, you're getting the new stuff. And I have my notes in my pocket here. And I may need to look at them at some point. And you're going to learn a word that I learned in the last few uh, years, which is liminal. I'm getting liminal with you tonight, which means I, I'm in between two things. I have not really studied this talk tonight, but I know it. I've lived it, and I'm going to do my best to share it with you. So let's start with me and my dad. There we go. That's me and my dad. That was uh, less than a year ago. Uh, we were in Indonesia in a place called Sulawesi. We were going, uh, we were going scuba diving. My dad took up scuba, scuba diving at age 60 and has been all over the world for the last 21 years. He was 80 at this time. I was 57 at this time. I'm 58 now. And weirdly, before we did our early morning scuba dive, I went onto an online longevity site to, and throw, threw in all my information to see how long I would live. I don't know why I chose that morning to do it, but I put it all in there and it spat back to me 98 I'm going to live till 98. So I went down to get prepared with my dad to go out scuba diving. And I said to my dad, Dad, you know, how long are you going to live? And right out of his mouth immediately, he says, 98. True, true story. So I said, oh, that's so interesting, Dad. Dad, on the way down here, I found, you know, when I was, when I was on the site tonight, I, or this morning, I found that I was going to be living till age 98 too, maybe. And I did the math as I was coming down to go scuba diving with you this morning. 
I am less than halfway through my adult life at age 57. I have 39, if, if I start counting at age 18, I have 39 adult years behind me. I have 41 ahead of me. I'm not even half at halftime at age 57. And dad, at age 80, you're barely in the, third, in the fourth quarter. So when we start thinking that way, we learn how to scuba dive later in life. I'm learning how to surf. I started learning how to surf a year or two ago. Not good at it at all. And as a kid who grew up in Southern California who learned French instead of Spanish, that was not smart. Um, <laughs> but it did lead to, to the name of my company, Joie de Vivre, but that's about all it led to. Um, and my Spanish isn't so good, but I live in Mexico a lot of the time. So I'm learning Spanish and learning to surf and a lot of things at an age in life where in the past we thought your vision got a lot more narrow. Your life got a lot more narrow. Well, it, our perspective on time and longevity has a lot to do with this. Um, we've seen some major changes over the last couple hundred years in terms of how long we live. Uh, if you see between 1900 and 1950, there was a, almost a 20-year increase in longevity during that time. And then another 10 years in the, la the latter part of the, of the century, of the, 19th, of the 21st century, I'm sorry, the 20th century. Um, so actually in one century, we added three, de three uh, decades of life to the average person in the United States, from age 47 to age 77. Um, and so that actually sort of led to a lot of things that we still haven't figured out yet. We're still figuring this out um, because this all happened so quickly. Imagine life without adolescence. <laughs> now, if you've had kids, that's probably an interesting question. Um, but 115 years ago, the word adolescence did not exist until this guy, G. Stanley Hall, created a two-volume set with the, a book named Adolescence. His premise was, uh, and it had a huge impact on, on society at that time, was that Childhood actually doesn't go to age just, doesn't go to till just puberty. Prior to that, in some ways, we thought of childhood just being a, a pre-puberty thing. And that's why people in the teen years were actually working with adults in industrial plants. So he said, no, actually, adolescence or puberty is this transitional time. It's a transitional time when your emotions are changing, your physical body is changing, and you're getting ready for the gifts of elderhood. I'm, I'm, of adulthood, excuse me. What if we took a page out of Ken Dykewald's uh, language from decades ago and actually imagined midlife as not being adolescence, but middlescence, which is a word that's actually not well known. And what if middlescence, midlife, was a period of life where you're going through lots of emotional and physical changes to prepare yourself for the gifts of an elderhood? I'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, the, for those of you who don't know it, the most popular, uh, most number one selling poet in America today is? Rumi. Rumi, yes. 750 years after he died. <laughs> and this is a beautiful quote. And part of the reason Rumi is so popular, um, and he talks about love a lot, yeah, people like that, but Part of the reason he's so popular is because a lot of things he said 750 years ago, or he wrote, address modern day issues. He said, my life can be summed up in three phases. I was raw, I became cooked, and then I burned. <laughs> this 
defines the three-stage life of modern life. So you, this is how we've been living for the last century or so. You learn till you're 20 or 25, you earn till you're 65, and then you retire till you die. That sounds awful. <laughs> Truly. Um, but it, it has defined in many ways the societal narrative of our phases of life. Um, I think Rumi should come back 750 years later and just say, I was raw, I became cooked, then I burned, and then repeat. <laughs> raw, cooked, burned. Raw, cooked, burned. So wouldn't that be interesting if we could be raw again in our life, like slow-mo? Slow-mo became raw again in a whole different way. Now, a different sort of interesting perspective on life stages comes from Mary Catherine Bateson. So for those of you who don't know Mary Catherine Bateson, she's the daughter of uh, Margaret Mead, cultural anthropologist, and Gregory Bateson, the psychologist. Her point of view is our increased longevity has not actually just added a room at the back of our house. Almost if you think of it that way, if you get this extra 10 or 15 years, you just added a master bedroom to the back of the house, but it's sort of like, it's almost like saying you just have 10 or 15 years of additional decrepitude and old age. Her point of view actually is no. That extra 10 or 15 years we may have relative to our parents is actually a midlife atrium. And that midlife atrium actually allows light and air and sunlight for some reflection and renewal throughout the whole house. And so in essence, our extra 10 or 15 years may mean we actually can be renewed in midlife. So we get those, those extra years not at 80 or 90, we get them at 40 or 50. Um, and we have vitality a lot longer. Well, I wish I understood that blueprint, that architectural blueprint in my life about 10 years ago, 10 or 11 years ago. In 2008, my life fell apart in a variety of different ways. Um, first of all, I had a very close friend of mine named Chip, who was my insurance agent, insurance agent and one of my best friends, who was the person I would go to often when I was feeling a little depressed. He committed suicide um, in 2008. Uh, and then four other friends of mine over the next three years committed suicide. I had a long-term relationship end uh, that I wasn't expecting. I had a family member in my life going to prison wrongfully, was in prison in San Quentin for eight months until a federal judge let him out. Um, I had a flatline experience giving a speech on stage. I promise I won't do it today. <laughs> I had a flatline experience where I was giving a speech. I had a broken ankle um, and a bacterial infection in my leg and I was on antibiotics and, and on crutches in St. Louis. Now, I know, you, you'll ask the same question my mom asked. What the hell are you doing? You should have been in bed. Yes, I should have been. Um, but I went flatline when I was signing books. Fortunately, I, I, I uh, was sitting down at the time. And, uh, you know, I came back, uh, but I went flatline nine times in 30 minutes. Um, all of that happened at exactly the time the Great Recession came along. And so, and I was, for those of you who know me a little bit, um, I started a boutique hotel company called Joie de Vivre um, with the Phoenix in the Tenderloin, which, <laughs> um, 
which for those of you who used to know it 32 years ago, it used to be called the Caravan Lodge and it was a no-tell motel because it had hourly rates. How many of you knew it back then? Come on, out yourself. Oh, there they are. They're right there. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. So um, I loved that job. I loved that calling of being the founder and CEO of this company, creating 52 boutique hotels over the course of 24 years. But I loved it until I hated it. And, uh, and that Great Recession, I was hating it. I didn't want to go through the Great Recession, uh, like with invisible handcuffs, trying to run a company that, I, that no longer had any creativity or, free, or freedom for me. So I didn't have that architectural blueprint. At age 47 at that time, I had no idea what I was going through. No one had told me what midlife was supposed to be about. I didn't know about the idea that, you know, there, which I'll talk about in a few minutes, that there's a, a sort of a low point in life uh, in terms of the U-curve of happiness. I was in it. Um, I didn't know I could come out of it. So one of my favorite pop culture movies of the last few years was this movie, The Intern, with Robert De Niro. He, he said, musicians don't retire, they quit when there's no more music left inside of them. Well, ultimately, in the Great Recession, I was able to sell Joie de Vivre, which was not easy uh, to sell a hotel company, you know, in the depths of the downturn. I knew I needed to move on. I knew I had music inside of me, but I had no idea where to share it. Uh, I had been doing the same thing for 24 years. Uh, and then these three guys came along. Uh, Brian, who is <laughs> standing on a box um, <laughs> to make himself a little bit, you know, I love Brian, but he's, you know, he's not a tall guy. Um, Nate is a tall guy, and that's Joe as well. So Brian called me, uh, Brian Chesky called me uh, ex almost exactly six years ago. It's so funny. I was just talking to Kevin Kelly here. Six years ago, I was at Maha Kumbh Mela in India doing the largest humanity f human festival in the world. Um, and I came back from it, and Kevin just came back from it. Um, I came back from it, and immediately, three days after being back, I had a phone call from Brian Chesky at Airbnb saying he wanted to talk to me about Airbnb and uh, how I could help them democratize hospitality. So I first said to him, what's Airbnb? <laughs> and he says, well, you don't know what Airbnb is? And I said, well, I've heard of it. Are, like, aren't you like a subsidiary of Couchsurfing or something like that? He said, no, no, we're a different company than Couchsurfing. I'll Uber over to your house. Let's talk about it. And I said to him, what's Uber? <laughs> True story, six years ago, I did not have an Uber or Lyft app on my phone. Um, so I had no clue. I'd never heard of the sharing economy even. I didn't know what he was. So Brian came over. He told me, listen, you're going to be the head of global hospitality and strategy, and you're going to help us take our little tech startup and turn it into a global hospitality giant. All oh, that sounded really great, except I was 52 years old. I had never worked in a tech company before. Um, especially a company like Airbnb, where the average age of the employee was exactly half of mine. It was about 26, 26 and a half um, was the average age of the employee there. I didn't know anything about tech at all. I also was going to be reporting to Brian. I was going to be his in-house mentor. That was part of the idea. But I also would be on the leadership team reporting to a guy 21 years younger than me after having been CEO and founder of my own company for 24 years. 
how is that going to work? What's it, what, what was it going to feel like to get my first performance review from somebody who's the age of my son, uh, you know, or my theoretical son? So, um, so I, I scratched my head and I thought, you know, I, and by the way, in terms of that little fact, 38% of us in the U.S. have a boss that's younger than us, and by, uh, they're saying by the year 2025, over half of us will have a boss that's younger than us. This is a big change. There's a lot happening. So I said yes to Brian. I said, sure, let, let me help you democratize hospitality. That sounds like fun. Um, and yeah, I'm sure it'll be yeah, yeah, um, not easy. And I joined, and I, even though I was intimidated, I knew this was not my natural habitat, I joined, and then on my third day on the job, I said, okay, I don't understand tech at all. So Brian said, go sit in some meetings with some engineers. So I sat in a meeting with a bunch of engineers, and there were a dozen of them, again, average age about 26. The guy running the meeting found out was 25. Uh, he's basically a wizard. He was so smart. And I'm sitting slightly away from the table, so I'm there in the room, but slightly away. And I, and I think everybody got the sense that I'm just observing. So, and I'm making notes. During the whole meeting, I make notes of everything I'm hearing because I don't understand a lot of words. Um, so all of a sudden, the wizard turned to me and he said, Chip, if you shipped a feature and no one used it, did it really ship? What? I took philosophy in college. I did not take comp sci. I have no idea what you're talking about. After a uh, awkward silence, uh, mercifully he moved on to someone else and I slid down in my chair and I couldn't wait for that meeting to end. And that's when I realized I, I was not the mentor. I was the intern. Now, Robert De Niro was brought in by Anne Hathaway um, because she wanted an intern, and he became the mentor. My path was the opposite. <laughs> I was brought in as the mentor, and I became the intern because I had no experience, knowledge, or understanding of this new, brave new home sharing and tech world. In fact, at one point, in, at the end of my first week, I met this guy, I met Joe Gebbia uh, earlier, and then I met Joe Bot, who was this, who they, both of them sort of le led the, t the product team. And Joe Bot said he was the head of product to me. And I tried not to grimace because I, that didn't sound right to me. I went and looked for Brian and I said, there's this guy, Joe Bot, and he says he's the head of product. I'm the head of product. I'm in charge of the, host, the hosts and the homes and the apartments, right, Brian? Like, Chip, product is the software application. It's our website. Oh, okay. <laughs> I started to learn, you know, the lingo was beyond me. And all these women were calling each other dudes. I didn't get it. Um, so, so I learned pretty quickly what intergen improv is about. Now, intergen improv, I think this is so interesting. We're in the jazz, in uh, the jazz, uh, SF jazz right now. Because intergen improv has been well known in the music world. I mean, think of these two, Lady Gaga and Tony Bennett, or Wynton Marsalis, maybe on the stage with the young stars of jazz. The idea of intergen improv and this, this sort of riffing off each other is what we know in the music world for many, many years. There's lots of examples I could use. But we don't know of it so much in the working world. Um, and yet, when it does happen, often it happens in the form of almost like a mutual mentorship. 
Uh, we know mentorship is when the physics of wisdom goes from old to young. Reverse mentorship, which was created about 20 years ago by Jack Welsh at General Electric, is when he, when he knew his senior executives didn't understand computers or the internet, and the young people at General Electric actually helped teach them. That was reverse mentorship. The future, to my mind, is all about mutual mentorship, where it's actually, I'm learning, I'm learning as much from Brian as he's learning from me. Now, my experience in my four years full-time at Airbnb, before the last two years I've been a strategic advisor, so I've been at Airbnb now six years, was very much what you see in this picture. It was generally me, a generation, or most often two generations older than most of the people that surround me surrounded me. The mutual mentorship we often had was, and, and, and I hate to stereotype, especially with Kevin in the room, because Kevin is such a smart technologist and older than me, um, but it was an EQ for DQ um, implicit trade agreement. What do I mean by that? The thing that I had been brought in by, by Brian to do was he, he thought I was coming in to help basically uh, teach hospitality. But actually what became clear over time, and if there's any Airbnb people in the room who, here who know my time there, a lot of what I taught was emotional intelligence. It was EQ and leadership skills. Um, and what I learned in return was DQ, not Dairy Queen, um, <laughs> but digital intelligence. So the trade agreement that was going on, often with me and the people around me, and I had over 100 mentor, mentees over my six years at Airbnb, has been often an EQ for DQ uh, transfer. Now, I'm going to look at my notes for one second. Thank you for being patient with me. You know, to actually give a speech the first time in this venue is scary. <laughs> um, so the thing that's interesting to me in the world we live in, especially here in the Bay Area, is we see young 20-year-olds starting companies that move to being global giants almost overnight. And somehow, we expect these young digital leaders to miraculously embody the relationship wisdoms that we elders have had decades to learn. It's really hard to microwave your emotional intelligence and your leadership skills. Um, while I was brought on to Airbnb supposedly to be the knowledge expert around hospitality, what became clear to me pretty, quick, pretty quickly was that my fact knowledge wasn't all that important. Let me use an example. Um, one of the pieces of fact knowledge that a hospitality veteran would know is how many rooms does a maid clean in an eight-hour shift? Not all that important at Airbnb, right? I mean, most of our hosts, uh, I was in charge of all the hosts globally, they didn't have maids. They were doing the cleaning themselves. So that was a fact that wasn't all that important. But as my um, young uh, director number two in hospitality team, Laura Hughes, who's 27 years old, said to me, she said, Chip, your fact knowledge doesn't matter much here. Your process knowledge matters a lot. And I asked her, what do you mean? She says, you know how to get things done. You know how in an organizational setting to get things done because you understand the underlying motivations of everybody in the room and the people outside the room that we need to go out and get things done with. You have, in other words, organizational savvy. 
And if you're someone who's 25 or 27 and you've never been in an organization of much size, that's something you don't know. Yes, you don't know the EQ stuff maybe. That's something that tends to build as you age. IQ doesn't, EQ does. Um, so as I started to, and, and what was so fascinating is we actually did, well, there's five generations in the workplace today, although very few companies have five generations in the company. We did have four generations in the company. And that's amazing to have four generations in one company at the same time. So we better get better at intergenerational collaboration and think of it almost like an, uh, an intergenerational potluck because we all have something to bring to the table. So while I was there at Airbnb in this role, I started to, first of all, not often, but sometimes people would make light of my age. Um, generally, it was fun. Um, one person called me the elder, and I was like, ah. <laughs> Sounded like elderly. I thought, it was that, I thought that's what they were saying, but you know, there's a big difference between being elderly and an elder, in my opinion. We can then maybe in Q&A talk about that. But here's the thing that became clear to me. I started to see that in a world where power is moving to the young faster than ever before, we've never seen anything like this organizationally uh, in terms of this increasing reliance on DQ. And it's not just the tech world. It's frankly seven of the 10 most valuable companies in the world today are tech companies. So every company wants to be a tech company. And everybody wants to hire those digital natives who are gonna actually help them create a new strategy for their company. So what I started to see was there's a new kind of elder emerging in the workplace. And maybe there's a need for this new kind of elder. Now this is not the elder of the past who was regarded for their reverence. We know respect your elders or revere your elders. No, the, this new kind of modern elder that was being created was was appreciated not for the reverence, but for their relevance. Their ability to actually take their timeless wisdom and apply it to modern day problems. Uh, the ability to be, as I was at Airbnb, both the curious student or intern while also being the wise mentor. And I think a modern elder, this modern elder, this new premise of a modern elder, which we'll talk about tonight, is exactly those two words. It's all about curiosity and wisdom. Curiosity opens up possibilities. Wisdom distills those possibilities into what's important and essential. That combination of curiosity and wisdom actually allows you to, frankly, be more facile and able, be better able to help distill down what's important in an organization. Um, one of the things that a lot of us, a lot of us know that as we get older, our brain isn't as fast as it used to be, nor do we have recall. Our memory starts to actually fail a little bit. One of the things a lot of people don't, there's a lot of societal narratives that don't give credit to aging. And so I'm going to give you one right here. You know all of that. What you probably don't know is that the aging brain gets a little bit smaller with time. And the thing that happens with your brain as you get older is, generally speaking, you get all-wheel drive, <laughs> which basically means you, go, you do the left brain, right brain tango better than a younger person. Now, probably not the real tango, but better than a younger person. Who knows? Maybe. But the, you, you actually are able to move from linear to crea creative much more quickly, more adeptly, which means that, what is the result of that? It means that you get the gist of things faster. You can think systemically and holistically 
much better than when you were young, when you were extremely focused. Now, in the context of an organization like Airbnb that's growing as fast as it is and has a lot of things happening all over the world at once and has a, a leadership team that's very young, to be the person in the room who can occasionally synthesize and get the gist of something and say, I see pattern recognition here, and pattern recognition is another way of saying wisdom, and be able to call that out is the value of a modern elder in that workplace. So, that led me to saying I wanted to write a book. So four years into Airbnb, um, I left a day-to-day -day role and started, I went down to Mexico, down to Baja, uh, California, Sur, about an hour north of Cabo San Lucas, and I decided I was gonna go ahead and start writing this book, Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. Um, now I did 150 interviews while I was, this was um, like spring of uh, 2017, so a little less than two years ago. I did 150 interviews with people in midlife. I initially defined midlife as 45 to 65, and it ultimately midlife became 35 to 75, <laughs> because I realized that actually people do, especially in Silicon Valley, start feeling a little bit ir irrelevant and bewildered in their mid-30s. And there are a lot of people, a lot of people in this room, who will work way beyond the traditional retirement age of 65, by choice or necessity. So midlife, which was a crisis, is now a marathon. Um, <laughs> um, great news, huh, Chip? Uh, so the thing that was so interesting to me is that no one had a roadmap for the second half of life. I, you know, honestly, the roadmap that people had was this midlife crisis thing, and after the crisis, oh, you have decrepitude and disease. Wow, that's a lot to look forward to. Um, so that's what I started saying, like thinking, you know, I was going to like channel Ken Dykewell here. What is this middleessence thing? Adolescence was this transitional period. Everybody accepts that people in adolescence are going through difficult times. You sort of cut some people some slack. What if middleessence is also a transitional time? It is a transitional time. Let's be honest. What happens in midlife? Well, you might change your job or career or where you live. You may get divorced. Your parents may die. You may go through menopause. Men, you'll go through andropause. Check it, on check it out on Wikipedia. You're going through some things. Um, you may, if you have kids, you might have empty nest syndrome. Uh, you may have a health diagnosis that comes out of left field. All these things happen in midlife. You get, at age 50, a few, months, a few weeks before, you get your fucking AARP card. I mean, like, <laughs> that's a transition for sure. One you didn't want. Stuart, I swear, swear, is that okay? Okay, okay, all right, all right, all right. Um, so, damn, that's a lot of transitions. That's a lot of transitions, but we as a society act as if you're just supposed to know it all. In that period of life and midlife, you're supposed to know it all. Well, let's talk about this. Let's unpack this a little bit. I started studying life stages as I was writing the book. I was like, okay, I'm writing this book, but now I'm like, oh, I wanna go learn about, you know, rites of passage. Why do I wanna learn about rites of passage? Partly because I was thinking, this is weird. I think society's done a great job of helping people go through transitional times and create rituals, rites of passage, celebrations, so that society supports people through those times. So I wanted to say, what is a rite of passage? So what I learned is, back about the time when, when G. Stanley Hall wrote Adolescence, this guy named Arnold Van Genep, 
wrote a book about rites of passage, studying indigenous societies. And he said there were basically three phases for rites of passage. There's the first page, which is the first phase, which is severance. Then there's the second phase, which is scary. <laughs> it's the threshold or the liminality. It's that period when you're in between two things. Liminal means to be betwixt and between, to be in limbo, to be sort of in this awkward in-between space. Puberty is that. Um, frankly, when you're a baby and you're learning to go from crawling to walking, that is liminal. Uh, me being up here giving a speech for the first time to a group like this is liminal um, because I should have, you know, tried this out a few times first. Um, <laughs> um, this is the second phase, threshold and liminality. And then there's this third phase when you actually come back and you're incorporated back into society. So the whole premise of a rite of passage is you are severing something from the past, a period of time of your life often that allows you to then go through a difficult time and you come out on the other side, a new person. Does this sound familiar? If you are someone who's studied mythologist Joseph Campbell, you know it sounds very much like the hero's journey. That's where he got the hero's journey premise was from the idea of rites of passage. And that's how George Lucas created all the Star Wars movies and lots of other Hollywood people have used that idea of a rite of passage as their model. For those of you who are saying that's way too abstract, let me give you some examples. <laughs> Puberty, bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah, quinceanera. The commencement of adulthood, graduation ceremony, and literally a commencement. You're going to get married, you have a wedding. You're going to have a birth, you have a baby shower. You die, this is Bali, one of my favorite places. You die and you have a funeral, but between baby shower and funeral, nada, nothing. <laughs> Why is that? It is because in the year 1900, longevity in the United States was 47 years old. And it was a lot less than a lot of other places. So midlife, as a premise, didn't make sense. Midlife was 24 years, 25 years old or something like that. So the thing is, 1965 is the year that midlife crisis as a phrase or it was coined, that, that phrase was coined by a psychologist. And it is now 54 years later from the, the, when we coined that term and we've done very little to solve it. So... That's part of what I wanted to do, which is why I now consider myself the crossing guard at this intersection. <laughs> the intersection of no longer and not yet, um, which is how, often, how we often feel in midlife. Um, so we support people through adolescence and we celebrate them, but we don't do that for adolescence. No doubt about it. And we can sort of, there's all kinds of reasons like, oh, you know, let's not coddle the middle agers, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I, I can see what some of you are saying right now. Um, but the thing I want to just say is I think that we are missing an opportunity, frankly, in the workplace, because this is a collection of people who more often than not today feel like they're being put out to pasture. Uh, did you know that one out of every four people a, in their 50s, lost their job between 2008 and 2013. That's why there are a lot of suicides. That's why there's a lot of opioid use in certain places where the job uh, situation is awful. Um, so I started saying, okay, well, God darn it, let's figure this out. I want to figure it out further. So I'm going to now go from this 
rites of passage thing to try to understand biology. So the ultimate form of liminality is this. So the caterpillar feasts on leaves, feasts on leaves, eats, eats, eats. And then one day, the caterpillar actually attaches itself to um, a twig or a, a branch, spins its own little cocoon, which becomes its chrysalis, and out the other side, after a gooey mess, if you've ever seen the, in, in between the stage, the liminal stage of caterpillar to butterfly, you'll see that it's just goo. On the other side becomes this butterfly. Now, I, you know, I feel this is sort of like, you know, first grade biology, but isn't it interesting that within the DNA or within the, the um, what the caterpillar had it within it, it had the capacity to become a butter butterfly. It's called these imaginal disks. So literally, literally the seeds of that caterpillar were, I'm sorry, the seeds of the butterfly were within the caterpillar. So that got me thinking, okay, well, how, how could we think differently um, about midlife in this way? Carl Jung? <laughs> that, that's not Carl Jung. But, <laughs> um, but, but this is a quite a famous quote of his, which I won't recite, that speaks to this idea that maybe it is that midlife is a period when you're going into the cocoon. Maybe midlife is a chrysalis. Maybe midlife is a liminal period. What if it was? Listen, 115 years ago, G. Stanley Hall taught us that adolescence um, was still part of childhood. Someone in 13 or 14 was not an adult yet. Prior to that, that's what they thought. That was an adult. So maybe there's a whole new thinking that we have to have around midlife and beyond. Here's another fact that isn't very well known. So a lot of society, there's a lot of society, societal narratives that are at odds with reality. This is the U-curve of happiness. How many of you have heard about this or seen it before? The beautiful book that came out last year called uh, The Happiness Curve by Jonathan Rausch. Uh, here's the facts behind it. In every country in the world except Russia. <laughs> this is true. In Russia, actually people get happier after they die. I, it's a, so... <laughs> There, there is a there's a statistical error there. I can't, I don't, I don't understand it, but that's what I know. Um, so we, from about age 25 to about age 45 to 50, we go through a long, slow slog of our happiness go, gets lower and lower. Why is that? Well, it's the mashup of everything. First of all, I think the first half of life is about accumulating. The second half of life is about editing. So we accumulate, like that caterpillar eating leaves, we accumulate. We accumulate stuff. We accumulate relationships. We accumulate people we date. Then we get married, potentially, and then we maybe accumulate children. Um, we accumulate responsibilities, jobs, community responsibilities. By our mid-40s, we're worn out, and we have way too much on our plate, and we just want to go into a cocoon. <laughs> So I wish I'd seen this when I was 47 years old and had my really dark period. And I wish some of my friends who are no longer with us had seen this. Um, but this is now actually quite well known. And what I will say is that it, it's, a, it's a narrative that needs to be better known because it helps people to understand how to rejigger their expectations. One of the reasons things get better 
And the part that's bizarre here, I know for some of you are thinking like, what, really? People in their 70s are happier than their 60s, happier than their 50s, happier than their 40s? Yes, men actually, to be honest with you, men around 75 to 80 start to level off. The last, last five, to, five to seven years of people's lives, it levels off and then goes down um, for physical health reasons usually. For women, you know, it goes all the way into the early 80s. So why does it get better? Well, there's a lot, I mean, read Jonathan Rausch's book, it's a great book, but basically it's because we rejigger our expectations. If disappointment equals expectations minus reality, our expectations are high. Now at some point, our expectations end up having to get changed. That's part of that liminal period that's difficult. The things we dreamed of, we have to sort of like say, okay, it's different now. And you start to actually get clearer with wisdom of what's important, getting down to like the essence of what's important. So this is a very important thing for us to know. Most of us don't know it. The other thing that's, that a lot of people don't know is that as we get older, we do know that our EQ does grow, can grow with time and we get better at just regulating our emotions. That's pretty easy. I mean, but the truth is the regulation of emotions has a lot to do with people's happiness. All right, so here's Chip's weird transformational journey of life uh, graph. Let me take you through it. Um, this is my premise of how I think life is meant to be, but this is the first time you're seeing it because, you know, it's probably idiotic, but <laughs> I like it. Um, when we're young, we have a growth mindset that leads us to become an emerging adult. Then we become this embodied adult and we're eating those leaves like that damn caterpillar and we have resources and skills and experience, all that's being dumped on us. Then we have this cocoon period, this liminal period. I'm gonna call it the emerging elder period. Nobody wants to be an elder when they grow up, but guess what? I think it's gonna make a comeback. Um, <laughs> it's a darker time of life generally. It says 45 to 65, it's really probably more like 40 to 55 or so. Um, and then we actually come out of the cocoon. We come out of that liminal period um, we start to, say, to see, what does that say right there? It says uh, an embodied elder. And who knows, you know, maybe we ultimately become an elder flower. Um, <laughs> uh, so the idea, <laughs> elder flower, that's supposed to, yeah, it was meant to be a joke. Um, <laughs> I also think as you get older, not only is it about the perfect alchemy of curious and wise, it's also the perfect, perfect alchemy of levity and gravitas. Yeah. Levity allows it to be light. Gravitas is weighty. And that combination is, to me, the embodiment of what it means to be an elder. So I think this has some possibilities. Now, I'm no academic. I'm not a professor. I haven't written a book on this. I've written one article about it. But actually, when I wrote the article about this, like 120,000 people read it and, like, or like went, and went sort of like out there. It's like, okay, maybe people can actually... See, and I like the fact that when you turn it on its side, <laughs> it sort of looks like a butterfly, right? What? Right, yeah. Um, all right. So Richard Rohr uh, is a uh, Christian mystic, and he says, there's much evidence on several levels that there are two major tasks to human life. The first task is to build a strong container or identity. The second half of life, uh, half is to find the contents that the, that container was meant to hold. You know, the dominant, the trance of the dominant story 
or the chance of the dominant culture, the societal story that we have is so at odds with what it can be and what it is for so many of us. Um, I think part of our process in midlife is to move out of the operating system of the ego, sort of what Slomo talked about, sort of move out of the operating system of the ego into the operating system of the soul. Um, I think it's also, there's a beautiful Shakespeare quote, but also has been attributed to Picasso. By the way, Picasso has one of the best quotes about technology I've ever loved, I've ever uh, read. He, Picasso said, computers are useless. They only give you answers. Um, <laughs> uh, which an elder is, actually gives you a lot of good questions, hopefully. Um, so Shakespeare supposedly said, the meaning of life is to find your gift. That's the first half of life. The purpose of life is to give it away. That is the second half of life. And that is what an elder does. So this is literally where I live. <laughs> I live in Baja. Um, I live there two-thirds of the time now. Uh, this is Alfredo the cactus. Um, <laughs> there are a few people who have hung out with Alfredo, right? Yes, there you are. Um, so... I went down, you know, there's a beautiful quote from William Blake uh, that describes my experience in Baja. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to want to make sure I don't get it, it wrong. Um, when I'm in Baja, I feel like I'm taking dictation. When I'm there in a very spacious place, somehow things start to channel through me. And that's why I get to a place where I ended up writing the book. But I also started to ponder this question. How are we minting elders? Or how are we minting modern elders? How are we creating the space for people to reimagine and repurpose themselves? To mine their mastery, look at what they've gotten wise at, and then actually ask themselves how they could apply it elsewhere. And how could they reframe their mindset around aging in a world where the societal narrative around aging is pretty abrasive, pretty, pretty problematic? So <laughs> that led me to creating a place. Um, uh, it's called the Modern Elder Academy. You would have read about it in this last Sunday's New York Times, but it was a completely wrong article. <laughs> the article had a lot of facts wrong on it, but we can talk about it during Q&A. Let me start by just saying, it is a social enterprise. I have spent my whole life up to this point, well, I've been involved in a lot of uh, nonprofits and social enterprises. I've been a for-profit entrepreneur at Joie de Vivre and at Airbnb. This is a social enterprise. I don't make a dime on it. I built the whole campus, three-acre campus, um, we give a million dollars in scholarships away because the, a year because 50 to 60% of our people are on scholarship. Because frankly, that investment banker at age 55 who's not trying to figure out what to do with himself next, he's got resources to figure out, to help, help him. But there's a lot of people who don't have those resources. So um, people come, they come for a week, uh, 18 people in a cohort. Uh, and the, the real intent is to help them to become more adaptable and resilient. The goal of doing this and creating this was really to help catalyze a whole set of midlife wisdom schools to be created around the world. I'm not going to create all those. I'm going to create one. This may be the only one I ever, ever create. 
But I've been lucky enough in my years, the last few years, to be on the board of three amazing organizations. Glide Memorial Church here in the Tenderloin, um, the Esalen Institute down in Big Sur, uh, and Burning Man. Um, so each one of those institutions, I've been on the, you know, on the boards for each of those for about 10 years each. Each of those institutions with a singular location catalyzed people, generally social entrepreneurs, in a nonprofit way to go out and create, in the case of Glide, progressively minded churches doing good works in their community. In the case of Esalen, 10 years after Michael Murphy and Dick Price created Esalen, they had a gathering of um, personal growth retreat centers here in San Francisco and 100 personal growth retreat centers had shown up, all of them younger than Esalen. So that, they catalyzed something. And then Burning Man, there's over 100 uh, uh, festivals, transformational festivals around the world that actually live by the Burning Man 10 principles. So if you get it right, you can be a catalyst for others to do something great. So that, those rites of passage we talked about earlier, Arnold Van Genep, severance, threshold, liminality, incorporation. Well, the way I see it is this is how you become a modern elder. These are the four lessons. These are my four lessons at Airbnb. First of all, I had to evolve. I had to strategically edit my historical work identity and what I knew. And that's a hard thing to do. That's when, for a lot of people in midlife, that's the hardest. For me, it meant absolutely right-sizing my ego, making it smaller, because I was no longer, the, the, as I am right now, the sage on the stage. I was the guide on the side. I was the guide behind the scenes, helping the three founders and their leadership team grow the company. But I was, it was not me in, you know, with the, on the marquee. Um, and that, so that required a lot of you know, internal uh, you know, rejiggering. Learning speaks to, my favorite uh, role model of all time in the business world is a guy named Peter Drucker. Uh, he lived till age 95. Um, and every two years in his life, uh, I think part of the reason he lived so long was he was so curious. He was always learning. Every two years of his life, he'd go study something new that had nothing to do with being the world's most famous management theorist. And he wrote two-thirds of his 40 books that he wrote after age 65. So learning is the elixir of life. Curiosity is the elixir of life. So that's the next thing. I had to learn home sharing. I had to learn millennial travel habits. I had to learn a lot of things. Um, thirdly, it starts to get a little easier. Those first two are actually the hardest lessons. And, and for those who want to know more about this, this is all in my book. Collaborate. Um, here's the good news. As we get older, we get better at collaboration. There's a lot of evidence and, and, and you know, you, I know you have a cranky uncle that you're thinking about right now that doesn't fit this, but on average, this is the case. And why is it? It's partly because we have more empathy. It's partly because we're more moderate in our emotions. We know how to regulate our emotions. And it's partly because, as Google uh, pointed out, the number one uh, common uh, factor of successful teams at Google was having psychological safety. Generally speaking, you create an age-diverse team with at least a couple, one or two older people on the team. They create this space where it's not quite as competitive. Um, and something comes out of that, which I call invisible productivity. An older person helps everybody around them get better at what they're doing. And then finally, you get to counsel. Now, for a lot of people who want to be a modern elder, they say, I'm going to be the counselor. And they come across like the priest at the pulpit. 
you've got to listen to me. I have all of the knowledge and I'm going to just dispense it to you. Sit down at my feet. No, that doesn't work. Um, <laughs> because then you sound like a priest or a parent. And I can tell you, these young people don't want a priest or a parent. So what I realized over time was my job was to be at times the company librarian, which meant I knew that know how and know who. I had a lot of people I knew and I knew like, and I've read a lot of books and a lot of white papers and things like that. And so I would, people would come to me and, and they wanted me to help transfer knowledge to them and, and make context for them. That's part of what I did as a counselor. But part of what I did as a counselor also is I was, as my, my uh, director report, Lisa called me, I was a confidant. Now she's French. My definition of confidant, when she first said to me, Chip, you're my confidant, I said, well, you haven't told me anything juicy yet. <laughs> it's true. And she said, well, in French, we think of confidant as you're the one who gives me confidence. You're my permissionary. You're the one who gives me permission. And you give me the path for how I can get it done. You don't just, you don't just sprinkle magic dust on me. You actually give me confidence, but then you also give me guidance. And you help me facilitate awareness in who I am. So, quick story. I'm just going to do this br briefly. This is Carrie Henley on, on the left, and April, her best friend from childhood on the right. They came to the Modern Elder Academy almost a year ago. This is a great story just because it's so much about liminality. Carrie showed up, and she had just moved out of her home with her husband of 17 years. So she literally left her home, Fort Collins, Colorado, came to Baja, to a week of the Modern Elder Academy. And when she was going to go back to Fort Collins, Colorado, she'd rented an apartment and she was going back to rent an apartment. So this is very liminal. She had also just started a company called Age Without Borders. And it was a company that frankly didn't have any revenue coming in. And she was basically going to be on her own. So she came and she was very vulnerable. She was in a place of liminality. A week later, and you know, I wish she was here, uh, she could tell you better than I could, she was in a whole different place. She had a new level of confidence, a new sense of how aging can be aspirational, and also a new sense, frankly, of her own mastery. What she'd, the things that she thought she'd gotten good at over time, she, had not, she didn't even realize some of the things that she had become a master at. And weirdly, uh, and this is not what the program's about, but um, one of the guys in the program, that, uh, you know, yeah, uh, it didn't happen there. It was months later. His name's Stephen. This group and many of our groups at the end of their 18 people cohort, they go off and um, go back to wherever they're from. And we've had people from 16 different countries. And then they do a Zoom call, in some cases every week, some cases monthly. And Stephen and Carrie just started to build something. And now they are like, like, like that. So we're, we're not a dating site, I promise you. But... <laughs> So maybe midlife is meant to have a pit stop. The way our, our societal narrative is that you fuel up between 18 and 25 with education and support, and then you're supposed to drive this vehicle, which is our body, the rest of our lives. And it's no wonder that in our 40s, 50s, and 60s, we feel like we're running on fumes. Maybe we're supposed to have a midlife atrium and a midlife pit stop so we can actually imagine what's next for us. 
Maybe, it's, maybe life is not a one-tank journey. It's a two-tank journey, and you're supposed to refuel here. Your mileage may vary. <laughs> this is a beautiful quote from Michael Mead, mythologist. Although an infant becomes a child simply by aging, a person cannot become an elder by simply becoming older. Elders fall into the category of things that are made, not born. Becoming an elder is not a natural occurrence. The qualities needed don't simply develop from physical changes brought on by aging. Rather, there is something metaphysical involved, something philosophical and spiritual that is required. Old age alone doesn't make the elder. One of my favorite TED Talks, I'm just wrapping up now for those that are thinking like, okay, what's the timing going on? I see the clock's gone, is at its end. Dan Gilbert wrote, uh, did a TED Talk. He's done a few, actually. But one of his was fascinating. He said, human beings are works in progress that mistakenly think they're finished. Every age group that they looked at, people vastly underestimated what change was going to happen in the next 10 years. Every single age group. In other words, life is liminal. It is constantly changing. So maybe, like me, you can start surfing, or maybe not. Um, the question is, what is a way for you to create your own rite of passage? What's the thing that you can do? Or what can society do to start actually celebrating people who in midlife and beyond choose to do something new? whether it's surfing or something else. There's a town near Perth, Australia that actually has something called the Celebridge Festival. And it's a multi-day festival celebrating people 60 and older trying something new. In, in, uh, in Japan, Kevin, there's uh, something called Kanteki. Kante Kante Do you know what it is? Okay. It is, I will tell you what it is. Um, uh, it is... Kanriki, and 60 years old is the beginning of one's second childhood. So maybe it is time for us to imagine that there is a period in midlife and beyond that's different. So my thought on this is, I thought, you know, okay, this all sounds great, and I'm going to go write a book, and I'm going to go out and be like this missionary to go spread the message and help the world see this, and... Um, on the second day of my book tour in September, I was uh, in New York, and I was at a TED speaker's dinner because the very next day I was giving a TED talk at the TED headquarters in a TED salon. And this is six weeks before the Modern Elder Academy was going to open to the public after our beta period. And I found out from my doctor I had intermediate stage prostate cancer. I got liminal. I had a lump in my throat because he'd said to me before I left uh, to go to New York, he said, oh, I think there's only a 20% chance. He was wrong. So life for me, you know, I'll be fine. You know, prostate cancer is, like, if you're going to get cancer as a man or as anybody, it's like, it's one of the better ones to get. But I'm pretty far along in terms of how far along it is. So I don't know how I would have handled this um, maybe five years ago. Uh, and today, knowing what I've learned, uh, you know, as the teacher, uh, one of the teachers at the academy and just having studied what, the fact that life is full of transitions and life, midlife is full of liminality, I, you know, I'm taking it in stride. And I'm learning 
that you know I'll get through it and we'll move on. Um, I think it's time for us to rethink the role of the elder and to actually maybe even bring the word back. Uh, when you own a word, it gives you power. Um, for those who don't know, the, the word Yankee back in uh, colonial times was considered a derogatory term. It's what the Brits called the dandy Yankees, testing their manhood. And then the Yankees, the Yankee, the colonists owned it. Similarly, in the 1950s, if you called someone black in the South, it was a slur. And then Malcolm X and others said, black is beautiful, and they owned it. If I was called a queer when I was on the ch in, the, in my childhood uh, playground, it made me scared to hear that. But today, LGBTQ community has owned the word queer. I think it's time for us to own the word elder. So, are you ripe, awesome, and ready to blossom? <laughs> this is my last slide, my last thought. Um, and then Stuart's gonna come join me. You know what? The truth is, do the math. Do the math I talked about at the start. Figure out how much of your adult life, what percentage of your adult, adult life is still ahead of you. Imagine yourself both curious and wise. How can you create that powerful alchemy of being curious and wise at the same time? How could you become a modern elder? How could you start embodying what are the qualities of an elder uh, in a society that needs elders, especially in the workplace? Finally, if you, you know, having talked to some arborists about this and some ecologists, what we know about trees is the following is that when you plant young, new trees near older, mature trees, what the young trees learn is the pathway of the root system. And that strong pathway of the root system that's underneath a, a tree is the thing that actually helps root those younger trees and helps them to actually understand how to become older trees. Um, and the forest... And all of us are better off for that because of that underground connection. So thank you. A uh, lady named Esley, uh, Leslie, not sure. How do you say your last name, Leslie? Thank you. I, she says, I recognize you're not a woman, uh, but that you can talk about women elders and whether their ideas, uh, their situation differs from male elders. Yeah, so thank you. Uh, Leslie, where are you? Um, so, um, great question. So for the, for, just to make sure everybody heard that. So uh, when I first started using the word elder, um, I did have some pushback from some women friends of mine saying, when I hear elder, I, th I, hear, I think of church and I think of the male members of the church who are the elders. Um, and I, that's not what we're meaning for sure. But let's also recognize that women who are older have the combustible, uh, the combination of ageism and sexism together. Um, men are debonair mm. as they get older. Mm. Women are not perceived that way. And so, and there's all kinds of things. I, talk, I actually write about it in the book, how um, women have it more difficult uh, 
older when they get older. But here's the interesting thing. There's a study that I talk about in the book where women actually gain confidence with each passing decade in the workplace. By their 50s and even their early 60s, they feel smarter, more confident, and more embodied as a leader, whereas men actually start to see a drop-off in their confidence in about their mid-50s. So I think what we need to see as a society is that women come into their own a little, like men may come into their own later in puberty, right? Women tend to actually, girls tend to actually hit puberty before boys a lot of times. Mm -hmm. Maybe in, in midlife, uh, and especially in the organizational setting, uh, women often actually mature and become more successful and more confident later in their midlife uh, working world. But they have to deal with that ageism and sexism, which is absolutely toxic. Um, so she, at, Ashton Applewhite. So for those who want to actually understand someone who's a big advocate, um, Ashton Applewhite is, she has a TED talk about ageism, but she also talks about sexism as well. Um, this is nice. Here's a question you would give us uh, of their age. Brian, age 34, asks, can you share any learnings you may have learned, gleaned about how to accumulate process knowledge as opposed to fact knowledge? And Kevin and Kelly asked a related question, is there a modern young person? And is there a new role for them to match your modern elder? Well, I think the modern young person um, has been uh, almost satirized in, in, in uh, TV shows like Silicon Valley, where the, the modern young, young person is this hoodie-wearing, you know, brash male uh, technologist. And I don't think that is necessarily what I encountered at Airbnb. Um, but there certainly is a sense. I, I, a lot of people, God, I, I, I get really frustrated when I hear people beating up on millennials and saying, oh, they're so entitled. And they're, first of all, they st those of us are boomers. When you talk, just be not notice this. When you talk about the millennials and you, and you start saying four or five adjectives, ask yourself 40 years ago if people would have said that about you. <laughs> because a lot of the issues around millennials are stage of life issues. Um, but there are some specific things around millennials that are not stage of life issues. The fact that power has moved to young people faster than ever before means, frankly, they feel entitled because they see Brian Chesky or they see, you know, Mark Zuckerberg becoming billionaires in their 20s. So, like, I want that too, is like how some of them think. So they get, they get hard on themselves. So that's that question. But back to the question before it that Brian asked, and I don't think it's Brian Chesky because Brian's 37 and this one's 34. Um, how do you build process knowledge? Mm -hmm. Process knowledge to my mind, so fact knowledge, just to recap, fact knowledge was like, I, you know, the fact that uh, maids clean a certain number of rooms in an eight-hour shift is a fact knowledge I brought to Airbnb that didn't have any meaning. Um, the process knowledge spoke to understanding how you, understanding people. And understanding people, you can take psychology classes or you can just be a person and a human <laughs> and, be, and be observant. And you know, one of the things that's funny about the, the movie The Intern is Anne Hathaway didn't want Robert De Niro to be her intern. And what she said in the back of the car at one point on a cell phone was, he's a little too observant. <laughs> Being too observant is what an, a modern elder is. Mm. And the, the question is, if you're too observant, it means you actually observe and you have pattern recognition about humans and you have wisdom about how this movie's gonna end, so to speak, and I don't mean the intern. I just mean how things are gonna go. And so for the 34-year-old Brian, how do you build that process knowledge? 
I would just say the, the, the thing I did in my early, my, in my 20s and my 30s is every Friday afternoon um, for many, many years, I don't do it anymore that much, but I still do it occasionally. I would write on Friday afternoon or on Saturday, I would make a list for half an hour of what I learned that week. What did I learn this week? And I did it particularly in times when I was really struggling mm -hmm. um, because it actually gave me a sense of meaning. Did so, you keep those lists and never look back at I them? I do have, yeah. No, I, I still have the books. Mm -hmm. I, it was called my wisdom book. It was mm -hmm. my first one was my wisdom book, and then there was a wisdom book second, and a third, and a fourth. And mm. the thing that helped me do is it helped me to understand I am learning some things. It helped me to feel like, okay, I'm embodying some wisdom along the way. The other thing is I'm a huge fan of personality, certain personality types, uh, typing tests. Um, there's something called the Enneagram, E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M. Listen, I've learned it when I was 23 from a woman named Helen Palmer in Berkeley. And I got to tell you, my whole life has been better by the fact I understand myself and others a little bit better. So. Something I wondered is, as you were speaking, you're basically referring a lot of things to your experience with Airbnb. Um, but then you cut loose partly from there to do your book, and you did all these interviews. What surprised you in the interviews? What was new from them? Well, I, you know, after having read the, after having done my Airbnb experience, written the book, <clears throat> started the Academy, then I sit down for an interview and I was like, oh, I go face to face with the ageism again. It's like, you know, I think the most strange question I ever was asked was, have you used Botox? And I was like, do I look like I have? I don't think so. Um, but no, truthfully, a, a, um, an, uh, some uh, European journalist asked me, he said, you know, I heard everybody in Silicon Valley over 50 uses Botox. And I said, I don't, and I don't think that's true. And so... And ignore everything else you've heard about Silicon Valley. No, I think, Valley. I mean, I think that, I think that the, um, the narrative's quite strong, that um, mm -hmm. somehow the playing field that we're playing on is a physical playing field. So that means, like, you know, how you look how, you're ex you know, how you physically work out. And, you know, that if you're, and, and we know a lot of people, and that there may be some people here today, and you're, that's the playing field you want to play on in your 50s and your 60s and your 70s. And it's impressive when you see these videos, these three-minute videos of someone who's just like, you know, bench pressing 300 pounds at, at 75 years old. But in some ways, I, I get sad when I see that because I feel like they're playing on, a play I mean, it's impressive what they're doing, but they're playing on, the wrong playing field. And the, the thing that gets better as you age is your emotional and spiritual depth and your ability to then offer that to someone else. And, you know, the fact that you're the freak who can actually <laughs> bench press 300 pounds at 75 is okay, but it's in some ways, it, it's almost like arrested development. Well, that was a good answer to a, a wonderfully different reading that what, what I was asking. I was okay. curious about the interviews. <laughs> Thank you, Stuart. <laughs> not, not the interviews now so much as the interviews you did uh, for research for the book. Oh, Between okay. Airbnb and the book, you talked to a lot of people. Yeah. What surprised you from their perception, their studies, and their accounts? So I think the thing that was most shocking and not surprising now that I think about it, but it was shocking at the time, was that word bewildered. You, at the very start, we had that quote from the, the West African writer, um, and he says, the, you know, the adults are bewildered. And literally, that is what I felt as I was interviewing people. People felt bewildered because 
the narrative that they grew up with about how they were supposed to be in their 40s and 50s in terms of you know, hierarchy wasn't what they're seeing. Mm-hmm. And, and they felt in many ways like that, you know, power's moving 10 years younger and they're gonna live 10 years longer. And so, wow, 10 years younger, 10 years longer, 20 years of irrelevance that you didn't used to have. Mm-hmm. And so the irrelevancy gap of that 20 years is probably the number one thing I noticed mm-hmm. and people scratching their head of like, wow, Silicon Valley is going to figure out how to help us live to 100, but I can't afford to live past age 40. <laughs> <laughs> that. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, uh, yeah, okay. Save. Brush your teeth. Learn more languages. All those things uh, that can make things thrive for decades. Um, I'm going to get to the organizations. Um, yeah. Ryan Phelan asks, you didn't reach out to Airbnb. Airbnb reached out yeah. to you. And... Um, that raises the question, her question is, how does this kind of opportunity get to happen for others? And yeah. so two questions there. One is, how do you get organizations reaching out like that? And is there a role for your modern elders to basically put themselves forward and not wait to be asked? How yeah. does that play out? Okay, so Ryan's absolutely right. I mean, I, my situation was lucky, and for all kinds of reasons, <clears throat> uh, including the fact that the company that actually tapped me on the shoulder was a company that was like a rocket ship. Mm-hmm. And... So all of that was lucky. Um, and that was because I was a person who had stature as a former CEO, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So long story short is um, that was my benefit. Most people don't have that. Mm-hmm. So part of the reason I have felt this sense of mission to go out there and talk about this is to help companies see that there's a lot of value in this intergenerational collaboration in the mm-hmm. workplace. Um, and, and could they, in fact, start to imagine modern elders within the midst. Like Mm -hmm. Google has a program that's moderately well-known with their engineers where it's called 20% time. Hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's been like it for a long time. Engineers at Google who want to do something entrepreneurial for the company can apply to say they want to apply 20% of their time to a special project that's their own entrepreneurial project that that might actually turn into a product for Google. What if we created a modern elder 20% thing where there's somebody who's been around for at least 10 years in the company, understands the institutional wisdom, is what Ken would have Ken called 30 years ago a wisdom worker. I think it's time to retire the Peter Drucker knowledge worker from 60 years ago um, because knowledge is in our, in our laptop um, and in, in our phone, but the wisdom is really here and here. So how do we help mint people within our organization that already exist, and how do we change retirement such that on Friday you're working 100% and on Monday you're working 0%. That's nuts. It's nuts for companies, it's nuts for people. And some people want that and if you want it, fine. But if instead you'd like to have a three-year plan of sort of your process of leaving, you could create almost like these wise elders in an organization Mm -hmm. that their job is to sort of help institutionalize new people in the company and... after I wrote the book, I didn't even realize Procter & Gamble's been doing this for decades. They call them the masters. Hmm. And so that program Hmm. exists. So I think think what we have to do is get organizations to see that. And, you know, I think Uber, if they could do it over again, would have had a modern elder next to Travis. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Travis probably would still have his job, the CEO, Mm -hmm. if he'd had a modern elder next to him. And I I think that as we start to show people that just because you're a brilliant technologist doesn't mean you've figured out life. Mm-hmm. And often being a leader is understanding life. 
and understanding life is understanding emotions and people and humans and and that's the part that's complicated sometimes in tech companies. So there's this thing in Silicon Valley, which you mentioned in the book, of the executive whisperer, yeah. the executive coach. And um, there's some famously uh, effective ones, and that's, in a sense, a kind of a tradition that's accepted there. Is that as far as it goes, or is there more there, do you think? Yeah, I think, you know, Bill Campbell's the one I talk about in the book, mm -hmm. who's passed away, and he's famously with Steve Jobs and a variety of other people. Um, was their sort of CEO whisperer. Um, but the, the difference, you know, what I think, what I'd love to see, that when you're a coach in that kind of role, you're not there all the time. Mm -hmm. And the value in having, the, I mean, now that I've had my own personal experience of it, the value of being there all the time is I'm able to uh, intern publicly and mentor privately. And what that meant was with Brian, when I saw things that, I wanted to give him feedback on. I've never give it to him publicly. Right. I never in the middle of the meeting that he's running. So, <laughs> Brian, you're you're doing that wrong. Yeah, um, right. So, but instead, because I was there all the time, I had the opportunity to uh, give him feedback privately because I was observing things along the way. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so I think you know, and the fact that there are over a hundred people who asked me to be their mentor allowed me to understand the organization more. And those three founders, my God, the company was growing so fast. So sometimes you, you get out of touch with what's happening in the organization. Mm -hmm. So I was sort of the wise Yoda that people would come to and sort of have conversations. And I was helping them personally, but I was actually in the process learning things about what wasn't working in the company, mm -hmm. which allowed me to be helpful to these folks. So I actually think the traditional you know, executive coach who talks with their CEO twice a month. That's, there's value in that, but what I'm talking about is something sort of different than that. Uh, so Kevin Kelly raises the question, do you have a sense of what the ideal age diversity profile in an organization is like? And that'll probably vary from industry to industry. Uh, but it also, to me, raises the question of, you know, besides that you're teaching uh, individuals how to uh, transition, go through the liminal stuff to become the next stage for themselves, um, are you also doing workshops for companies to help them transition into more age diversity in their companies? Just starting to do that. So uh -huh. just starting to figure out how to help. Companies have said, a lot of people have sort of said, this modern elder academy looks interesting. We don't want to do it as individuals. We'd like to come down as a group mm -hmm. and do a private thing where we could actually look at how do we have better age diversity mm -hmm. um, and how do we value different voices. So you have millennials, Gen Xers, and uh, and, and boomers all together. So we're starting to do that. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the ideal mixture, I think it does depend on the, the industry. I think um, the, more, the more at risk of disruption you are as an industry, the more you need a bunch of young people in your organization. Uh, and so I think that I, I do believe that. And so, and then if you're gonna go out and disrupt an industry, as Airbnb was, I think mm -hmm. you need some older people from that industry like me, oh, interesting. who could help you understand the landscape. Understand mm -hmm. the landscape. I have seen a handful of healthcare companies, healthcare startups here in the Bay Area, that are going to go help. They're going to go disrupt the healthcare industry, and it's a bunch of people, 30 and younger, who don't understand the landscape of healthcare. Mm -hmm. And you've got to understand that because you can't just come up with the great new product that's going to then change the healthcare industry because you have to understand the institutionalization of how things are gonna change. And similarly, you know, one of the things I said to Brian and Joe and Nate in the first, actually first week, I think, 
was we need to pay hotel taxes. <laughs> and they're like, what? We're, we're home sharing. We're not a hotel. I was like, if we're going to be a hospitality company, we have to pay hotel taxes. Mm. And that was at a time when we weren't, we weren't paying that yet. And ultimately, that was part of where we got to. And it was some of the sense of like, we are, if we're going to try to be a, within the hospitality ecosystem and we're going to become as big as you want this company to be, which back then, six years ago, was sort of laughable because we were a, tiny, we were a relatively small company. It's like, this, this is the future. I know my pattern recognition says to me, we will be paying hotel taxes someday. Let's accelerate our process to getting there. Um, so that's an example of, of where my institutional knowledge of the industry was such that we would never, you know, we, that a lot of hotels still fought us. Mm -hmm. In fact, in New York, they don't want to pay, has to pay hotel taxes because it legitimizes us. But, um, so yeah, this is a different, this is very good advice. And it sounds like a different kind of acquisition for companies that are growing fast and typically sort of acquire the, the new range and skills they want by acquiring companies that do that, which are often other young companies. Yes. And you're saying don't just acquire companies, acquire individuals who have yeah. the decades of experience in the domain which they are now expanding into. There's a woman, Bridget Duffy, who is here in the Bay Area. I don't know if she's in the audience here, but she's a doctor. She was the chief experience officer at the Cleveland Clinic. She works with a bunch of young millennials now who are disrupting healthcare. But her role is to not just sort of lay out the landscape and say, this is how disruption will occur if it happens, but also to make introductions to people mm -hmm. within the industry and within the government, because that, dis you know, any kind of disruptive technology is going to have to figure out how to work within the landscape as well as the regulatory landscape uh, as well. And sometimes it's the older person who has been there that mm -hmm. actually can make the introductions. So you hire people for whom the term is the Rolodex. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> for the people yeah, they know who might bear relationships. But when you say Rolodex to a millennial, they say, what's a Rolodex? <laughs> <laughs> and that's, you know, that's the intergenerational thing yeah. right there. But I also wonder if there's, you know, we keep having to relearn that diversity helps, and diversity in various work groups helps, and male and female, and different races, and different backgrounds, and you're saying different ages. Um, but how is age diversity different from these other kinds of well, diversity? So great point. So I think diversity has gotten a lot of great, you know, uh, now empirical evidence that shows that it generally works in groups, especially mm -hmm. in organizations and companies. Um, but here's the fascinating piece of it. For companies that have a diversity and inclusion program globally, only 8% of them have expanded that be beyond gender, race, sexual orientation, and whatever else mm -hmm. to include age. So age is not often thought of in the diversity realm. How it's different- Do you want it to be? Or I, do you think, think it's I absolutely want it to be. And I think one element of it is you know, cognitive diversity, which sometimes can be neuro, how, your, how your brain works, but also cognitive diversity speaks to mm. what your experience in life is. Mm -hmm. And so I actually think mm. one of the beauties and, and one of the a few- Europe has done a lot more testing and, and studies on age diversity than the U.S. has, interestingly, partly because Europe is aging faster and places like Germany have ac actually had to do this. Um, what they've actually been able to show is that age diversity has a particularly interesting phenomena relative to uh, race or gender diversity in that uh, gender diversity means a more <coughs> better collaborative skills for sure. But what age diversity offers is 
more synthetic thinking, more of what I talked about earlier, that ability to get the gist of something and not to move too quickly. So what they showed in a major German study was a young team all by itself, all by itself makes decisions quickly and makes a lot of mistakes. Mm. An older team, just older people, takes a long time and makes fewer mistakes. When you mix them together, you get the best of both worlds. And that's what uh, age diversity can offer the, the organizational world. Brilliant. Thank you. Yes, Stuart. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. This is Stuart Brand again. If you enjoyed this talk, consider becoming a member of the Long Now Foundation. For less than the price of a book or movie, monthly membership supports this series and keeps you connected to a whole world of long-term thinking. Thank you for listening.